Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, Dan Roper of the Association of the United States Army joins us for our first monthly update on land warfare trends sponsored by American Rheinmetall. But first, joining me is Eric Fanning, the president and CEO of the Aerospace Industries Association. Eric, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks, Vago. It's, uh, it's always great talking to you. Happy to be here. Uh, a pleasure indeed. And before we get started, a word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Eric, uh, you know, we have, uh, it, it, you know, budgetary uncertainty still staring us in the face. There are 12 appropriations bills that are built up. There's a question about what's next for the supplemental, and all of that has to be settled before the administration uh, submits its budget request uh, in March uh, to March 7, if I'm not mistaken, to coincide with the president's State of the Union address. Where do you see this budgetary dynamics on the appropriation side, given that both on the defense as well uh, as uh, the FAA uh, 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 appropriation is, is an important part of this? Walk us through where you think we are and where we're going. Well, first, it, it bears repeating yet again um, or multiple times a year and yet another year that anything short of uh, regular order appropriations passed in advance of the fiscal year starting is disruptive and it's expensive. Uh, it's bad for, on the national security side, the defense industrial base because companies can't adequately plan. Uh, and we've we've seen in, in excruciatingly in detail uh, where over, after years of certain investment decisions that the industrial base doesn't have the surge capacity that we wish we had now. And these are the types of things that contribute to those problems because this entire industry uh, can't mobilize as efficiently as it might um, because of this budget uncertainty. And CRs um, have become something that we seem to celebrate when in fact they're really disruptive and expensive. So first of all, here we are again. Uh, this year, it's even more complicated, splitting, splitting the bills apart um, and, and debating the supplemental on the side gives us more variables than we've, than we've faced before. So it's hard to determine what's going to happen in, in the end game. Um, but we need to get all of those passed uh, so that we can actually start FY24 uh, from a budgetary perspective, even though we're in it on a calendar perspective. I mean, there are things baked into the defense budget, for example, um, in this pivot and rebalancing towards the Indo-Pacific that we can't start. And so this bipartisan focus on really taking China seriously as a pacing threat is baked into a budget that, that we can't begin yet. All of this is also connected to the supplemental, uh, the border and immigration negotiations. Unfortunately, in the midst of this, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas appears uh, to face impeachment uh, proceedings in the House. Walk us through how you see these mechanics working out, because the White House is showing flexibility on immigration and the border in order to get that supplemental passed in order to help Ukraine and not give Russia a victory, which is also in the works, right? 90% of that uh, spending goes to U.S. jobs uh, that are producing these systems uh, that would go to Ukraine. How do you sense that that's going to play out? So that's that's a part of what is the co a complicating factor right now. There's a lot in that supplemental that you would normally want to see in the regular Pentagon-based budget, because as you pointed out, it goes to American companies. It's a way for us to replenish our stocks and also modernize them. Uh, we will replace, if the supplemental is passed, our stocks with newer munitions, newer kit, 
uh, than what we've been able to send over to Ukraine. It is jobs, and it has the other effect of shoring up and strengthening the industrial base. Uh, so it has that surge capacity that we need um, based on whatever contingencies happen around the world. I mean, what, you know, the world's on fire right now, and what we're seeing is no plan survives first contact with the enemy. We want to focus on China, but we've got Russia and Ukraine, and then the Middle East um, uh, uh, catches fire as well. And so we want an industrial base that is strong uh, and can do what the Department of Defense in our country needs from it. That's why we need regular order in the budget, and we need the supplemental passed in addition, because as you point out, that's money that goes to American companies, American jobs, and gets us um, modernized equipment and munitions. Um, let me uh, take you to the question of the budget outlook, right? We're at $886 billion. Assuming the supplemental goes through, that's about another $100, $110 billion, right? Uh, good, good money if you're looking at it. But if you look at the kind of demands that we're uh, looking for, and we're going to hear from Dan Roper later uh, in the show about you know U.S. Army needs and the, the importance, right? You're a former Army Secretary on the importance of volume. How do you think this, right? I mean, do we go north of 886? Are we going to be hovering at 886? Do we go farther up in this next future year's defense plan? What's what's your sense on what we're going to see from the administration? Well, it's it's hard to say. And we've got to make sure that inflation is accounted for. That This is a an issue that will, will play out over years. Uh, it's not something uh, that goes away overnight. Uh, especially when you're when you're doing long-term planning. So we don't know what that number is. We know what the demand signal is, though. We have, um, we, we know deterring a war is less expensive than fighting a war, which is less expensive than fighting and losing a war. It's, it's to our benefit and much cheaper um, than being in a position where we end up in war to deter that war. And people will ask about the size of the defense budget compared to other countries, let's say, but no other country, no other set of countries does what the United States does. Uh, what the United States is asked to do. And we benefit from that. That peace and stability we can bring has tremendous economic ramifications for our country. And so we need a strong, robust defense budget to make sure that we have the industrial base we need and we have the military posture to defer deter these conflicts. Um, you uh, mentioned uh, industrial base. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the administration released its first ever national defense industrial uh, strategy. You've had a chance to sort of uh, ruminate on that. Um, you were among the bodies uh, and whose membership advised on this as uh, Dr. Laura Taylor Calais uh, was spearheading that effort. What's your sense now a couple of weeks after on what the implications are for the industry? There is bipartisan focus on the need to make sure um, that we support the defense industrial base. It has largely a single customer. There's no other industry like that. And it's the decisions of the customer, the, the Department of Defense, the U.S. government, uh, Congress, uh, that shape the um, that shape this industry. And, and we realize over many years we made some decisions um, that weren't supporting the industrial base uh, that we need and that we want today. And so uh, I'm pleased to see this administration, the previous administration, focus on industrial base policy, uh, which which has always been a part of the Pentagon, but maybe not one of the priority parts. The 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 key, though, and, and this has been a, a very open, transparent process um, with the current Pentagon and the leadership that's working this industrial base policy, uh, working with industry, working with others, getting input, getting reaction. But the, the key is going to be what is the implementation plan? I think they have identified the generally the right set of issues that we need to focus on 
and think about. But what what is the plan to get at that? How are they going to do that? Because uh, it's going to require resource. Uh, and oftentimes, these types of investments don't compete well in the end game uh, with something else that you might be trying to get into the budget. So we need to make sure that they have a good implementation plan and that it's supported uh, with resource in order to back it up. One of the most uh, important parts of uh, industrial strategy is the role that exports uh, play in that, both whether on the commercial side of the house and certainly on the uh, defense side of the house. Our allies and partners constitute an important part of sort of helping uh, underwrite some of that capability and reduce the cost of our own uh, systems. You're going to be heading to the Singapore Air Show uh, in next week, uh, I think. Uh, and um, that's always a, one of the most important uh, shows in a very important part of the world. What do you hope to get out of it? Uh, and what are your priorities heading into that event, given that AIA uh, supports the entire DOD effort and nat- U.S. effort uh, while you're uh, forward? Well, first, absolutely uh, important to, to focus on partners and allies. That's a competitive advantage that we have that our adversaries don't have. And successive national defense strategies have pointed out um, the importance of that and how we need to prioritize it. And we're seeing that come into focus more today than I've seen in a very long time, this understanding that we can't get at these problems alone. We need to do it with our partners and allies and that there's a force multiplier, obviously, in doing that. And tremendous benefit for a number of reasons to have our partners and allies buy their equipment from us, not just from economic perspectives, but it binds us together, those partners and and allies, because the military hardware that the United States builds lasts for a very long time. And it helps, it's it's a glue that keeps that partnership, those partnerships alive. And so these air shows are a way of demonstrating that. Um, The United States showing up, government, industry, uh, military, uh, with our hardware, but also just the conversations and relationships you have to remind people um, that we have these we have these alliances, these partnerships, these friends around the world, and we show up. As uh, the AIA president and CEO, you don't like to comment on any one company, uh, but obviously there are very few companies that in fact uh, impact everybody across the entire sector than Boeing. Uh, right now, um, some questions about quality uh, challenges uh, the company has had. Uh, and uh, Maria Cantwell, uh, the uh, chair of the Transportation Committee on this in the Senate, uh, is saying that she wants to hold hearings about this. What are the implications? Uh, you know, and, and we have been uh, critical uh, and I think uh, deeply analytical about our coverage on the business roundtable uh, every weekend. Eric, what are the implications for, uh, you know, the, the bulk of your membership, including Boeing itself, that is a very important member of AIA. This is an important, iconic American company um, that's critical for our nation's economy, for our national security. Um, You know, the FAA is investigating as they do when something happens. But let me, you know, James Fallows, who once spoke to our board of governors, recently wrote that the, the safety of modern aviation is a technological marvel and that we are safer flying uh, than we are statistically, as he says, walking down the street or sitting in a chair. Uh, so it's a remarkable accomplishment. And it's because the manufacturers, the airlines, our regulators are all focused with a laser beam on safety. And the, the, the trends of safety over the years have been remarkably consistent as it's just improved um, year over year over year over year. So we'll, you know, the investigations will play out. 
uh, and and we'll see what happens. But uh, it's it's an important, a critically important company uh, in an ecosystem that focuses on safety as the first priority and has delivered on that safety. FAA reauthorization. Where do we stand? So. Uh, I'm optimistic, but I'm usually optimistic about things. I call myself a perpetually disappointed optimist. Um, but there's bipartisan support. There are some issues to hammer out to get this over the finish line. Um, but it's critical that the FAA is properly resourced. Um, this government industry partnership that we have in commercial aviation, that we have with the Department of Defense, is is a competitive advantage for us. It's something that works mostly very well. But we need to make sure the FAA has has the tools, the resource, and the workforce it needs uh, in order to keep up with the amazing new technologies that that American companies uh, are introducing and working on right now. And so that's my main message when I talk about the FAA reauthorization is we need to make sure that this very important regulatory um, agency has the tools it needs to be the best partner it can be in this relationship with industry. Um, uh, that was very funny about uh, being a disappointed optimist. But if you are an optimist, you can actually uh, get uh, some more things done as opposed to being pessimistic that, oh, uh, in a, you know, and be an Eeyore that uh, nothing's going to work out. Speaking of uh, optimism, uh, you're starting uh, the seventh year uh, of uh, your seventh year at uh, AIA, and uh, you have a contract extension that's going to take you uh, out uh, for a nine-year uh, term, assuming you don't get uh, renewed uh, again at the end of that. What do you want to achieve uh, over the next uh, couple of years, uh, Eric? Yeah, I'm I'm very excited. This is such an amazing industry or set of industries, you know, space, commercial aviation, defense. Uh, we have a great team at AIA. We've just brought some new team leads uh, in place. It's gelled and working really well together. There's a lot of new leadership uh, in the companies that are members of AIA. And there's no shortage of issues to make sure that that this industry, uh, that our industry, American industry, remains the strongest in the world. And so it's it's exciting um, to, to, to re-up for another turn uh, with the association and keep uh, plugging away for this important set of companies. And I uh, neglected to ask you about the R&D uh, tax credit. Uh, really quick, give us your sense on where that stands, because that's sort of foundational to uh, the uh, you know an entire industry that lives and dies on the investment it's making in the future. Yeah, I, you know this is uh, this is playing out in real time on the hill. Uh, it's really um, it, it's it's a critical part of the tax code, and and why we have tax code to incentivize certain behavior. So we, uh, as a country, decided to take a, you get to deduct in the year you spend on R&D and amortize it over five years. At the same time, China doubled down. They'll give you $2 for every dollar that you invest in R&D. And the vast majority of that money that company spends goes directly into salary and benefits. This is jobs and private sector um, money investment going into research and development that keeps America competitive and keeps us ahead of our competitors and our adversaries. Uh, so this seems like a no-brainer to me um, to incentivize companies uh, and give them the ability uh, to take that deduction quickly so that they can spend more on R&D than they can if they advertise, amortize over time. And it's particularly important for small and medium-sized companies that don't have the same cash flow uh, that larger companies might have. And we are seeing some of our smaller members having to lay off people 
because they can't afford to, to maintain the R&D levels that they were under the previous tax code. Thank you so very much uh, for uh, joining us. Really appreciate it. Fairwinds following seas uh, and look forward to having you on many more times between now and when you hand over your scepter. Thanks a lot, Vago. Uh, always good talking to you. And joining us now for the first of our new monthly series on land warfare trends is Dan Roper. He is a retired United States Army colonel who is the director of national security studies at AUSA's Land Warfare Institute and can't think of anybody better to start us off on this series. Dan, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Vago. Look forward to our discussion. Uh, indeed, uh, same here. And a word from our sponsor, American Rheinmetall is supporting the U.S. Armed Forces on critical programs that enhance lethality, mobility, and situational awareness, including innovative precision fires, smart mission systems, and track and wheeled combat vehicles. Dan, I wanted to start this uh, series off. You know, almost everybody uh, is now an armchair strategist or tactician. A lot of discussion on lessons learned from uh, Russia's war on Ukraine and Ukraine's gallant defense. I think there are all sorts of lessons, both in terms of, uh, you know, the mechanics of the conflict, but also some lessons about how both the Ukrainians and the Russians are adapting. From from your sense, what are some of the broader uh, lessons that should be drawn on this, whether they're at the strategic level or at the tactical level or operational level? As we've looked into what's happened and what's happening and what the what the implications are, we're, we're focusing on what we're calling insights and implications as opposed to lessons, because on day two of the war, some people were declaring they'd already de- determined lessons, and we got to read about those in the paper every day. And it's not quite that simple, as every situation is context-dependent. But I think a good way to look at it is, let's look at some of the characteristics of war and see how they've been changing. And then we can talk about the nature of war a little bit. And then zooming back up, let's look at the U.S. Army and the Joint Force transformation for large-scale combat operations and see what might be applicable to that. And a couple of the real big ones are we're seeing the ascendancy of fires and particularly long-range precision fires, which have taken on a new character with drones or unmanned aerial systems and with first-person video and other characteristics and other features that were basically unknown to the to the military a little more than two years ago. So I think when you look at the U.S. Army's modernization and transformation, this this entire conflict really brings into stark focus the importance of the, again, the long-range fires and the integrated air and missile defense that's taken to defeat that. Right. So that, that's probably one of the bigger ones that we've seen. I mean, we, we've also seen the, the importance of logistics and sustainment when it's done right and when it's done wrong. And I think that's when we can be pretty confident that some of the lessons that we've seen are going to be applicable in the Indo-Pacific theater or any place else with the persistent intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance that everybody's cell phone can be reporting targetable data to a, a shooter. We have to be creative and innovative on how we sustain the force and the U.S. Army modernization effort has, under the guidance of Army Futures Command, has started a contested logistics cross-functional team, which is a very important addition to its modernization, which will enable and support all the other initiatives that we've been talking about for the last five or six years. 
Um, let me uh, take you to the uh, question of what it is we ought to be learning from uh, the Ukrainians, Dan. The, the, the cycles with which um, they are uh, adapting, modernizing, making sense of enormous numbers of disparate systems. There are a couple of, you know, I think there are 2,000 um, air defense gunners that are going around to take the low altitude targets, shepherding uh, the number of patriots that are used, uh, as you said, adoption of first person uh, video uh, unmanned systems. Uh, the nation reporting as a whole and being part of that ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance grid. Uh, as well as command and control, what what are some of the lessons that that you're that we ought to be learning from the Ukrainians about how to do smart stuff fast? One of the more interesting ones that I've uh, come upon from a colleague of ours at the Royal United Services Institute in London, who's actually spent a lot of time on the ground with the Ukrainians, is the discussion that people think that again I'm saying people meaning the U.S. military and others think that by adding new systems and robotics and autonomous systems that we might be able to reduce the number of soldiers that we have on the ground where they're finding that's actually counterintuitive and it's counter to the facts. As an example, a platoon that's got a UAS, an unmanned aerial system that's surveilling the enemy and then calling in fires on it may have a couple of its soldiers with their heads down the entire time staring at the screen and monitoring the situation and guiding the target. So what might have been a 30-person platoon has got several of its people that would normally be shooters, infantrymen, out of the picture. So the formation might have to actually get bigger to leverage the incredible amount of data and information that formerly nobody knew what was happening on the other side of the hill. And now they know what's happening five to 25 kilometers in front of them. So what that wrote, that really means is there's an increased cognitive load with some of this new high tech thing, high tech uh, kit that we have, and we need the command and control structure and the adjusted, what we would call mission command to figure out how to leverage that and not be stymied by it. One of the fallacies, as as you've said, right? I mean, historically, the criticism of the army is that it has sought size for the sake of size, right? It's not being initiative or, cre- uh, it, you know, it, it's not being inventive enough. Uh, it's not being creative enough. Whereas, um, are we going to see a palpable shift? Because in almost every single one of these cases, we're learning that actually a small army gets expended quickly, right? I mean, the Ukrainian army is, uh, and the Ukrainian nation is a third the size of Russia. Russia is building up a one and a half million uh, man force in order to be able to throw in the breach when, quote, the fighting season resumes, although from a Ukrainian perspective, this is ongoing. Do, do, you, do you sense that there is a shift, whether among uh, the army, the senior Pentagon leaders, or those in Congress, that the army actually has to be substantially bigger to do what it might be called on to do, especially if it's doing it either against Russia or, God forbid, China? And I think that's an incredibly important question. And I think as we look at Ukraine and what's what's happened to date, we're seeing not that technology is replacing the human on the ground or sophistication is replacing the old industrial age way of war, we're seeing they're, they're both happening simultaneously. So on the same battlefield, we've got these drones that one could buy for $600. Well, 
rigged up to either be a lethal delivery system or an intelligence platform. We've got trenches reminiscent of World War I with miles of barbed wire and mines and all kinds of obstacles. So it's, it's not either or. We're not transitioning from the industrial age into the information space age. They're both happening simultaneously. And every effort that's been recorded in human history has validated that certain things are immutable. They don't go away. And in the sense, with respect to the, the land domain, it all comes down to human beings. And that's where people live. That's where wars are decided. And you have to have the old and the new. Uh, just one more example. It's Again, you can have the long-range precision fires, and everybody has, for lots of good reasons, been discussing the, the role of HIMARS and ATACMS and other long-range fire systems and how important they are. But people are also realizing, no, we need millions of rounds of 155-millimeter high-explosive ammunition that right. armies have been using since World War One, And so you, they're, they're both part of the equation. And that does make the case for you, you need to be able to have formations slog it out if necessary. And that's that's not your prime option, but it's an inescapable one. The depth of uh, the U.S. military's magazines uh, is uh, admirable, right? This conflict has demonstrated that even as we support Ukraine, we still have enough in the tank in order to be able to do what we need to do, even though there's a massive industrial based mobilization. Uh, and, uh, you know, Doug Bush and the team in the army deserve a lot of credit for trying to, and across OSD, for moving kind of quickly. But then for the longest time, we convinced ourselves that you know, smaller numbers of better equipment is uh, favorable. We built 8,000 M1 tanks because God forbid if war happened, we were going to burn through equipment very quickly. And we did that in Iraq and Afghanistan, by the way, which is what I find amusing about this, or maybe not amusing, interesting. Are the big six modernization programs the army is executing, are those executable or do we need different sorts of approaches to be able to field far vaster amounts of equip equipment, far more quickly, uh, ultimately, at, at the end of the day, from from your perspective? I, I think that's a, a topic that the, the, the new chief of staff of the Army, General Randy George, has brought together as he's looked at how do we get, how does the U.S. Army get what he's calling formation-based readiness and lethality and continuous transformation? Those two things come together, at least in my mind, where is the all the programs were coming online, you know, the six main priorities and the 31 plus four systems, to a certain extent, they're each treated discreetly. And because ultimately, they either become a program of record or they don't. And so that's an important part of the equation here. But what is needed and needed in the near term to get us to the long term is that it's brought together in a formation that can do what it needs to do and we it can't wait till 2035 or 2040. So why the point that he's stressing the continuous transformation. And this is not an indictment on previous leaders. Initially, they had to give birth to the transformation that hadn't been touched in 40 years. And getting the system started is important. But the maturation, I, I believe, that can be best 
the best way to articulate it is this formation-based readiness and lethality right. that can go accomplish missions on behalf of the nation in support of the national defense strategy. Numbers, 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 and cross-stitching it, right? We have a lot of capability that could actually be useful in the Ukrainians. We, we're, we should really be looking at how the Ukrainians are doing this because the mixing of the old and the new can give you kind of quantum effects. And I know that there's been a lot of uh, intellectual work at Futures Command and elsewhere in the Army, which deserves a lot of credit for the experimentation it's been doing to sort of narrow that path. Let me let me bring you to one last uh, question. Uh, there is a big debate about the capabilities necessary, for example, uh, that we're seeing demonstrated in Ukraine and in any uh, European theater, as opposed to the capabilities we need uh, in the Indo-Pacific. It's seen more as a naval and air theater, and oftentimes, you know, a case is made that there isn't as much of a role for the Army there. Uh, and a concern that the Army maybe hasn't fully thought through uh, what its roles in the Indo-Pacific are. I know there's also been a lot of work uh, in that, and I know you did some of that work when you were in uniform. Does does the Army have an easily articulate a, a vision that it can easily articulate for what its Indo-Pacific role is, even if it might not be as central as air and naval power? It's still absolutely critical. What is that role, and is there a, a message that the Army can easily articulate from your standpoint? I think the Army leadership has been working at that quite quite diligently and quite effectively, but it's not a discussion that ever seems to be over. Pretty much since World War II, there's been an argument that new technology and new systems and new weapons are going to make land warfare obsolete. And that pretty much has not worked out in any situation that's occurred since then. And... I don't think we're in a dissimilar situation right now. Obviously, looking at the map of the Indo-Pacific, there's an awful lot of water there. So obviously, that's a, obviously an incredibly important domain. And the air domain that's over it and the space domain and the cyber domain that support it are absolutely critical. I think former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Joe Dunford, put it best, where he described the Army is the linchpin force, and he was talking about the specific example of Indo-PACOM, where it is doing all the, the things that have to be done. The, all the other things cannot happen without the linchpin force. And that's, again, not the most, it's not the easiest argument to make that convinces people, it convinces people that control budgets that the Army needs to be you know, take as prominent a role, but the, the army is the, the central service in this joint theater. It's got joint challenges. It's not a, you know, it's not two services challenge or one service challenge. It's joint. The our entire military, the way it's operating is based on joint all domain operations, which is again, basically the next evolution of joint operations. Right. And if we try to do it, and be a one-trick pony, that's not going to be, no matter what it is, it's not going to be a successful endeavor. So again, I did not say all that in eight words. So that sort of makes the case that it's not the easiest, it's not the easiest case to make, but there needs to be continuing education of the people that want to reflexively say, we don't need all these people or divisions or enabling capabilities. And, you know, from the U.S. Army Pacific, 
they've got, I think the number is nine theater enabling commands, meaning these commands provide right. support that everybody needs from air and missile defense to medical to signal, civil affairs, and on and on. All the things that are the lifeblood of any operation that's either projected across the water or in the air, the, the, the spinal column is the land force. And it always has been. And it appears that that's always going to be the case in the future. Dan, uh, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Terrific conversation and cues up a lot of the other issues uh, that we're going to be discussing over this uh, series and couldn't agree with you more, right? Try to do anything in Europe without the 21st Theater Sustainment Command or its sister commands in the Indo-Pacific that are just foundational to our ability to be able to execute any operation at scale. Uh, and, you know, air and missile defense, the spec ops uh, support, which uh, would be critical and come from the United States Army uh, as well. Thanks so very much again for your time. Really appreciate and looking forward to working with you on this series. Thanks, Vago. Look forward to it.